Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Opening your Bibles this morning to Ephesians, book of Ephesians chapter 1. It's so good to be back with you all at First Baptist Church. We were traveling for two weeks to uh, see Jessica's family and then my family, and, and somehow we got into Kentucky and South Carolina and everywhere else too. So I think uh, we charted up about 3,000 miles, 40 hours in the car with three children, which is like 80 hours in the car, and uh, seven states we drove through in our, in our road trip. And, um, I was looking like I might not be able to be with you this morning as I was a little sick yesterday and the day before, but went to the doctor uh, last night as soon as we got here and got cleared of all the serious stuff, just had a little sinus infection and some other stuff, so um, my throat's a little tightened up this morning, so if I have to swallow a lot, you'll excuse me, God's Word will, will still do the preaching for me today uh, from Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, just a couple of things coming up I want you to know about. Next Sunday night begins our big annual vacation Bible school, Sunday through Friday, next Sunday through next Friday, so uh, make sure you're registering your kids, telling other people and their children in your neighborhood about that. We go pre-K through uh, sixth grade, and so we'll have classes, crafts, snack, the whole nine yards for vacation Bible school starting next Sunday through that next Friday. That last Friday will be especially important because we'll have our family night in here with all the children singing their songs, presenting the gospel to the families, and then we'll have our block party just across the street near the activity center with the blow-up games and all that wonderful stuff. Um, Lizzie and Ronnie are here. Raise your hands, Lizzie and Ronnie. They are our directors for Vacation Bible School. They're in need of some things. Uh, one of the main things you can donate if you want is uh, those disposable multicolored tablecloths. You know, the kind you can buy at the, the Dollar Tree or wherever, just the big plastic uh, multicolored, any color you can find because it'll fit with the theme, whatever color it is. So you can donate some of those. They also have a list of school supplies. If you can just think of generic school supplies, go buy some of those and donate. Uh, but I'll ask them to kind of stay in the lobby with me after the morning service, and you can ask them what they need. They also need a few more workers, I understand. So Lizzie and Ronnie will be out front with me after the service. You can ask them what they need to make our vacation Bible school work. Well, today we come to the end of our series that we've been in since Palm Sunday, The Power and the glory. As we walked with Jesus through his entry through the through, to Jerusalem, we walked through Holy Week and his time with his disciples in the upper room on Maundy Thursday, his crucifixion on Good Friday, of course the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. And since then we've kind of been looking at these little uh, snippets, these little vignettes of, of Jesus between his resurrection and his ascension. We, we saw the disciples on the road to Emmaus 
And then we talked about his ascension two weeks ago and how important that is for the gospel, for our faith, that we have a high priest who is at the Father's right hand even now, praying for you and praying for me and interceding on our behalf. Last week, Zane walked you through the events of Pentecost and what we call Pentecost Sunday. We celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit 10 days after Jesus' ascension. And in churches that are really strict and observe the church calendar all the way from Advent until now, this would be the pinnacle of all of that. All the way back from Advent and Christmas and Easter, it all culminates today on what we call Trinity Sunday. Now, we don't always observe every single day on the church calendar. We just don't believe that we have to or not beholden to that in any way. But it does do us good every once in a while to say, you know what, we probably do need to preach on the ascension. And now today, we probably do need to preach on the Trinity. Now, last year, it wasn't on Trinity Sunday. I think it was April or May. It was part of a different series. But I did a sermon called, God is One, God is Three. And so if you want a little more doctrinal observation on the Trinity, go back and listen to that. I couldn't tell you a date. It's April or May from last year. Uh, This year, we're going to kind of look at a broader picture from Ephesians chapter 1 and the work of the Trinity in salvation. For those of you that are familiar with symphonies, uh, music, maybe you've been to the symphony in Amarillo or or somewhere else, uh, symphonies uh, are, are one piece of music that are composed in different movements. Now, most symphonies, true, traditionally are four movements, but there are notable exceptions in which symphonies are three movements. I think the most notable is Igor Stravinsky's, notably called a symphony in three movements. And so today I'm going to look at the Trinity from that viewpoint. That fits with my theme very well, to say this is a symphony in three movements. It's one work, it's one composition, It's one piece, but we see it unfold in front of us in three different movements. What does any of this with the symphony and the Trinity have to do with the work of God and Christ? Why is this the end of this series? Why in the church calendar is this the pinnacle Sunday of all of it? Trinity Sunday. Well, he talked about Jesus, who is now exalted at the right hand of the Father. He has poured out his Holy Spirit on his disciples. And now we take a step back and we look at this broad, overarching view of the work of God through Christ, through his Holy Spirit, this symphony that is played out before our eyes. If you know symphonies, you know there's different themes different motifs that show up throughout the whole piece. There's different moods, but it's one piece of music. Such is the case as we see with the work of the Trinity. Different roles, different themes, different movements, but one work, one goal, one God. Read with me in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Paul says... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's ask God to teach us by his word today, and then we'll continue. God, our Father, we give you thanks for this, your inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. And now we bow our hearts and our minds before your throne. We listen for the voice of our Savior, the leading, guiding hand of the Holy Spirit. From your word, teach us now. We are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Number one, we see here in this first movement, if you will, the plan of the Father in verses 3 through 6, the plan of the Father. If I were to ask you a question, what is the beginning of the gospel? Where is the beginning of the gospel? You might immediately think Christmas, Bethlehem, the incarnation, the birth of Christ as the God-man. That was the beginning of the gospel. That's where the gospels in the Bible begin with the birth of Christ, maybe his baptism, his temptation. Maybe we think of the other notable events in the actual gospel of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection. But I want to challenge you this morning to see the beginning of the gospel as much bigger, way beyond that stuff, into eternity past. It's interesting here in Ephesians chapter 1 that Paul begins with doxology. He's, he's no sooner gotten through the introduction than he erupts with praise. He says, I'm Paul, I'm writing to you, this is who you are. And now verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Most times it takes Paul a little while to get to that point. It takes him just a minute to get, as he explains things, to get to this point of doxology, to where he gets in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. That's later in the book of Romans, but here in Ephesians, we start there. We start with doxology. And I just wonder this morning if your doctrine, if your theology, if your understanding of what God has done for you in Christ if your understanding of the gospel according to the word of God has ever led you to that place of doxology, have you ever simply said to God, thank you for saving me? Oh God, I praise you for your salvation in Christ. God, I thank you, not just in church, but in your life, in your car, in your bed, in your shower, wherever you are, thank you for saving me. Paul begins there in this letter. Blessed be our God and our Father. And what's the cause of this praise for Paul? Because Paul begins to think about the beginning of the gospel. What was the beginning for Paul? Christmas? The cross? The resurrection? Or or maybe for Paul it was the road to Damascus. 
where he saw Jesus and was converted. Maybe it was the stoning of Stephen, the shift that took him to Damascus. What was it for Paul? What was the beginning of the gospel for Paul? Paul says, before the foundation of the world. Before Bethlehem, before Damascus, before creation, listen, before time itself, Paul says this was the beginning of God's plan. Not just a generic plan. We're all kind of used to saying that at times, aren't we? Well, God has a plan. God has a plan. And we kind of mean by that there's this kind of generic overarching purpose and meaning to everything, which is true. But it's a lot more specific than that. We're not just talking about God having a plan for things. We're talking about God having a plan for people. God having a plan for you and for me. Look at how Paul says this in verse 4. Even as he, we're talking about God the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The, world cho- the word chose means selected, elected, picked out for one's self. Now, admittedly, these words are controversial words. And Christians have historically disagreed over the meaning of election, the meaning of predestination. I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but we're not going to get into any of that this morning. I'll tell you, though, you can come back Wednesday, because in our series through summer called Hot Button Theology, we are going to talk about the differences that Christians have had and still have on this doctrine of election and predestination. So if you want to get into some some nitty-gritty stuff this Wednesday, uh, come back Wednesday, 6 o'clock in the Fellowship Hall. We'll talk about all the different ways that Christians have viewed this. Suffice it for now, and I hope we can all agree that these words are here. Can we agree on that? The word elect is here. The word predestined is here. And so regardless of how or why God does this, and all the disagreements that Christians have had about these issues, these words are here, and therefore they are important to us. So if God has chosen beforehand, elected, selected, what is it for? What is it to? Look at what Paul says in in verse 4. He has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So are we elected to salvation? Yes, broadly speaking, but this is very specific. He has chosen us to be holy and blameless. He's chosen us and picked us out unto holiness. In fact, when we think about the word holy, that's what it means, separated, distinct from, set apart from, And you almost see that same wording there with elect, chosen, brought out of the world and made to become more and more like Jesus. In Romans 8, 28 through 30, we all know and love these verses, especially Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. We love that verse. God causes all things to work together for the good. But verse 30 tells us exactly, or verse 29 tells us what that good is. 
It's not just that God is going to make everything in your life fantastic, though he might. Praise the Lord. It doesn't mean that God is going to heal every single physical problem you have, though he might. Praise the Lord. It doesn't mean that he's going to work out every single financial or career situation in your life the way you want it every time, though he might. Praise the Lord. What is the good that God here has predestined us to? Verse 29 and verse 30 says, He has predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son. That is the good that God has planned for you. That is the good that God has chosen you for, that you should be like Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 1 verse 4. He has chosen you before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and made into the image of Jesus Christ. That is the good that God has for you. And here's the thing. This wasn't plan B for God. This wasn't plan C for God. This was plan A for God for you from all eternity past without beginning. He chose you to be his. He set you apart for himself. God's plan all along has been a bride, a people, spotless, redeemed for himself, redeemed by himself. And in verse 5, Paul doubles down on this. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And again, we'll get into all the differences on Wednesday, and I'll break it down as neatly as I can in an hour or less or more. On Wednesday, we'll talk about the differences that Christians have had on these words. Can we agree that that word, though, in verse 5 is there? Predestined. God has predestined. Now, some of you in verse 4, at the end of verse 4, you'll see in love. Some of your versions will end verse 4 by saying that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. But it should actually be translated this way, that we should be holy and blameless before him, period, and now in love he predestined us to adoption as sons. That the cause of all of this is the love of God. Not the spite of God. Not the anger of God. Not the hatred of God for others. But the love of God for sinners. And Paul doubles down on this issue because we might be tempted to look at verse 3 and 4 and think, oh, that's okay. All we mean by predestined is that God wants us to be holy. Except that verse 5 comes along and says, no, not only has God chosen you to be holy, but verse 5 says he predestined you in the first place to be a child of God. In love he did this. Not obligation. There's nothing compelling God to do this. Certainly nothing attractive in me or you to make him do this. But according to his sheer love and grace, in verse 5 it says that, doesn't it? According to the purpose of his will. 
Not according to the purpose of your will. Not according to the purpose of your goodness or your righteousness or your works or your performance, but according to his own purpose and will. John tells us in the opening of his gospel, John chapter 1 verse 12, that all who believe in Jesus are given the right to be called the children of God. And then verse 13 says, who were born, not of the flesh, not of the will of man, not of blood, but they were born of God. God gives the new birth. God gives salvation. God is the doer here according to his will and his grace. And what is the aim of all of it? What is the purpose? We say, so, uh, so I can go to heaven. That's a very good byproduct. Eternal life, heaven, joy for me, happiness for me, peace for me in eternity. All of that is wonderful, but they are just really, really glorious byproducts of the actual purpose. Verse 6 in Ephesians 1 tells us the purpose. Why does God do this? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's all by God. It's all for God. And it's all about God. We are trophies. We are trophies of God's grace. We are the trophies that he puts on display in all eternity to his grace, his love, his mercy. Not trophies of our own spiritual goodness or our own righteousness, but trophies of his grace and his glory. Believer this morning, if you're a believer, listen, I wonder if you ever struggle in feeling loved by God. Believer, I wonder if you ever struggle in feeling loved by God. I want this passage this morning, I think God intends for this passage to soothe those fears, to calm those fears, and to know this morning, believer, that he loves you with a love that is hard to even contemplate because this is eternal love. Now, we think eternal is easy to define, but oftentimes when we use the word eternal, we're just referring to something that lasts forever, everlasting. But that is not all that this word means. To say that God loved you from eternity is not to say that God started loving you at some point and will love you forever. It's to say that this love, by being eternal, has no end, but also had no beginning. It is hard, maybe impossible, for us to even understand what is meant by eternal love. I cannot comprehend the timelessness. You cannot comprehend eternity. But that's exactly what God is. And when God reveals himself as, I am, that's exactly what he's saying. 
I am pure, constant being. And just as much as God is pure, constant being, his love is pure, constant love. Theologian named Gerhardus Voss said it this way, the best proof that God will never cease to love you Get this now. The best proof that God will never cease to love you is that he never began. Think about it just for a moment. That's eternal love. Love that has no end because it's love that had no beginning. And you can trust this morning that God's love for you, believer, will never stop because there was never a point when it did not exist. This is tremendous comfort for us today. This is surety. This is constancy. This is a foundation that we can stand on. The eternal plan and will of God for you and for me. Number two, the work of the sun. We move into the second movement. If you were there in the symphony hall, if you were listening to the orchestra perform, It ends, the first movement comes to an end, and you who know your symphony etiquette know that we don't applaud yet because the piece isn't over yet. It's simply going to the next movement, so we wait for the next movement to begin. Now we look back to the first movement. We hear themes coming back in, election and predestination, and God the Father, his love for us and his plan for us. But we also begin to see new themes unfold, and that's what we see here in the work of the Son. Just as God's plan has been from eternity past for his people, he now sets it forth in Jesus Christ. In fact, he said this from the beginning in verse 3. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Where? In Christ. The eternal plan of the Father steps out of heaven and out of eternity and into real, actual time and space in the person, the man of Christ Jesus. Verse 7, we see namely this work in his redemption. Verse 7, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You understand that the gospel is not simply that your sins are excused. The gospel is not about God winking at your mistakes and simply saying it's okay. You understand that the gospel is not your sin being excused. It is your sin being punished, but in someone else. And that's what Paul means here when he says redemption. Not just a free pass, but you have been bought. You have been paid for. And what is the price that bought you? You have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. We sing a song in Christ alone, and one of the verses says, And on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God 
was satisfied. One of the larger liberal denominations in the United States was uh, crafting a new hymnal for their churches, and they wanted to use this song, but they didn't like this idea of a wrathful God. They didn't like this whole idea of God being angry at sin, and someone needed to die for that sin. And so they wrote the authors of this hymn, a modern hymn, and they said, hey, we want to use your hymn in our hymn book, but instead of saying, and on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, we just want to say, and on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And the authors rightly said no. Because if you remove the idea, if you remove the idea that Jesus died in the place of sinners to take the full wrath of God in the place of other people, if you take that out, you have lost the gospel. The gospel is about substitution. The gospel is about something dying for sin. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has died for sinners. That is the good news. That on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And Jesus brought the plan of the Father out of eternity onto an old rugged cross and an empty tomb. These verses, verses 7 and 8, remind us that it's according to his grace. Once again, look at the end of verse 7. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. This is a reminder that this is all about pure grace, that we do not merit salvation for ourselves by our understanding of biblical things. We don't earn salvation for ourselves by nothing to offer him, but he has everything to give to you. When you were poor, he gives you his riches. When you were destitute, he lavished his grace on you. When you were depraved, he lavished his wisdom and his insight on you. When you were dead, he made you alive. And again, this isn't just something that happened. Jesus was born, and God saw that, and he was like, oh, great, this is good. <laughs> Let's go with this plan. Yeah, 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 yeah. You grow up, and then you're going to die for sins. This, this solves all my problems, Jesus. Thank you so much. I didn't know what I was going to do. That's not how this works out at all. Verse 9 tells us what this was. Jesus made known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose that he set forth in Christ. That plan that God had for you from eternity past, that predestining, electing grace and love, however you think that works out, that eternal plan that God had for you unfolds now in the person and the work of Jesus Christ 
through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, Paul says this was the plan all along. This was always the plan. And what Jesus did when he came was to simply make that plan known. Verse 10 tells us this was a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him, things in heaven, on things on earth. The, the scripture Pam read earlier from Galatians chapter 3 and, ver- and chapter 4. That in the, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. At the exact right time. The time that God had predestined from all eternity past. Jesus comes to carry out this plan. Just a few extra scriptures with me. Uh, we have time. John chapter 6. You can turn there if you want to. It'll be on the screen for you too. Look at how Jesus identifies his mission and his purpose. John chapter 6 verse 38. For I have come down out of heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This isn't my plan, Jesus said. I came to do the plan of the Father. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John chapter 10 John chapter 10, over a few chapters, verses 27 through 30. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who is greater than I, who has given them to me, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You hear here, and throughout the Gospels, Jesus is doing this. This is my Father's plan. This is God's plan. I have come to make this plan known and to do it. To do what, Jesus? To save a people for God. To lay my life down for the sheep that God has given me. Jesus identifies his mission. He shows us the plan, this covenant with the Father that existed from all eternity past. Why do you think when Jesus dies on the cross in John 19, verse 30, why do you think his final words from the cross are, it is accomplished, it is finished. The plan, Father, that you had from eternity past that you gave to me to carry out, I have done it. In verse 11, Paul uses the words of inheritance, that in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. And now he reminds us of this. Remember this, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the purpose of his own will. Paul uses this wording of inheritance, this something that is being given to us. That we don't earn, we don't deserve, we don't work for. It is something being given to us. Why? Paul reminds us, well, because, remember, having been predestined according to his will. It's all because of him. It's all from him. 
It's all through him. It's all to him. And the end result, verse 12, isn't really even about us at all. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. At the end of it all, it was the will and the plan of God. And it's for the glory and the praise of God. What joy and beauty is here for you and me today? There's a gracious invitation here in this passage. And the invitation is so simple. Jesus is the redeemer of sinners. Come to him and be saved. Such a simple invitation, but there's also a dire warning here. Yes, God in his love has sent a redeemer to save sinners who will come to him. But listen, he has sent only one redeemer. There is no other savior. There is no other Lord. There is no other redeemer except the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not multiple choice. This is not pick your savior with God. There is but one God and one mediator The man Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4 says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. And so the question for you is have you bowed your knee to this one Savior? Have you bowed your knee in repentance and faith to this one Redeemer and said, Yes, I am a sinner, Jesus, and I bring nothing to you but I seek everything from you. Save me, cleanse me, wash me. Have you come to that place? We call it getting saved or being converted, becoming a Christian, whatever you want to call it, faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. Have you come to that point in your life with this one Redeemer? Number three, the seal of the Spirit. Our last movement, verses 13 through 14. We saw the Father's plan, the Son's work. And as we walked through Holy Week, we saw the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus a few weeks ago, Pentecost Sunday, last Sunday, and now we see how this salvation comes to us through the work of the Trinity, and now namely, the person of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Yes, God had a plan for you from eternity past. But listen, we don't believe in salvation by election. We don't believe in salvation by predestination. We don't believe in salvation by works. We don't believe in salvation by earning anything from God. We believe in salvation by grace through faith. And Paul tells us in Romans 10, 17, that we cannot have faith unless we hear the word of the gospel. 
And so Paul says here in verse 13, when you heard the word of truth and believed, because it's not enough just to hear the truth, but you must believe the truth. Paul says when that happened, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And he uses this word seal. It can be different for our connotation, but historically speaking, in Paul's day, it certified the ownership of something that was being delivered. This was the signet of the king, the ring put in the wax that carried the authority of the sender, that ensured the receipt of what was being sent under the penalty of death. It guaranteed the delivery of what was sealed. And if we look at this in the course of redemption, the father predestining and picking, the son dying and redeeming, and now it's the spirit who comes and signs on the dotted line. Verse 14, though it's more than this, it's a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. It's more than just the seal. It's more than just the guarantee. There's been a down payment made. When God poured out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and then he pours out his Holy Spirit into the hearts of every believer that comes to Christ in faith and repentance since then, he's not just giving you some nice thing to have. He's giving you a down payment, an earnest that is yours, marking you and setting you aside as his, listen, until he comes to get you. Most of our translations say, until we acquire possession of it. Some believe it should be worded, until God redeems his possession. Either way, it's good news. This means that God chose me, the Son bought me, and the Spirit has sealed me. Signed, sealed, and delivered. I'm his through Christ. And it ends exactly where we think it should end in verse 14. To the praise of his glory. There's a few overarching themes in scripture. If we look at this symphony of God working through his will, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we see this theme pop up again and again and again, even here in just Ephesians chapter 1. To the praise of and the glory of God. The glory and the praise of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who redeems sinners like you and like me. If you've been to a symphony, you know the drill. You hold your applause until the end. You wait on the whole piece to be completed and then to show your appreciation to the composer, the director, and the performers, you erupt in applause. If you've been to a symphony, you know that this, this really kind of hoity-toity kind of crowd that's there, when it comes to the end, starts whistling and yelling and it seems very uncharacteristic of the whole thing, but that's exactly what it should be. You've held it this whole time. You've listened to the whole thing unfold before you and now in appreciation and praise for the people that have done this for you, performed this for you, you erupt in praise to them. I think we see that at the end here. And Paul says, to the praise of his 
glory. Maybe today, though, this is a realization for you. Maybe today you've come to a knowledge that you do not know this God. You do not know his plan as yours. Maybe you know all the stories and you you know all the stuff I've talked about today, but you've never come to that place where, as I spoke about earlier, you've placed your faith in Jesus and you've repented of your sins to trust and to follow him. You can know this plan is yours today as you come to Christ as your Savior today. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.